welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome back to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I'm here with a filmmaker who has made an absolutely gorgeous and disturbing and lovely and uh, horrifying (laughs) piece of little folk horror. Let's talk about it. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your film, please? Sure. My name is Sam Tressler, the fourth, and Leda is the film. It's my first feature film, and it just came out earlier this year. Could you talk a little bit about um, your journey as a filmmaker uh, toward this film? Um, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about your shorts and maybe how you feel uh, like they maybe prepared you for a feature length. Sure. So um, I did, I kind of found filmmaking as, as, as my passion medium. And so coming out of school, I went to school for it and I developed several shorts in school and I have a lot of interest in background in the studies of early cinema and silent cinema. And so you can see a lot of that reflected in my short work, just my love of trying to show visually concepts and use the language of film between like montage and editing or what you put in the shot or how you use like a subjective camera and what we see to try to have a subliminal effect on the viewer. That's what really excited me when I started getting more into cinema and cinema studies is is kind of the uh, the scientific way to affect a viewer with this art form. And um, so that kind of built towards what this feature is, because after viewing it, I'm sure you can tell that it's not your typical um, narrative storytelling. There's no talking in the film. It's very visual. It's very almost, we tried to make it hypnotic with the lack of dialogue and trying to really just have this this story that sucks you in visually and through its mechanisms, which seem strange. And I was afraid that it might, you know, make someone feel less connected with the film. But I think it actually, as an experiment, really worked in having this strange hypnotic way of sucking you into the film. So that's kind of what led me to this. I I had an interest in old silent cinema and old silent cinema techniques. And I wanted to bring that to a modern era, not like an homage film of a fan of silent cinemas making a silent movie like The Artist or something, but like actually make a modern film that tries to use some of those techniques and modernize them. Mm, that's so cool. And it's definitely something that I thought about while I was watching it, because it struck it struck me that it is at once it harkens back to, as you say, older silent films, but it does at the same time feel very modern and in some ways almost akin to reading a graphic novel, you know, because you linger on images and kind of let them sink in and the juxtaposition of images is sort of where the movement of the story happens. So I'm just curious, like, are, are you a graphic novel fan and do you feel like that's a, a an influence for you or... <laughs> Honestly, I'm not. I, I've never really read any graphic novels and I never really was too big of a comic book guy as a kid either. So um, I can't say that that's really an influence, but but I, as far as, you know, one image to the next and having the pacing and the visuals, I, I think that really is just uh, just my past kind of obsession with the cinema studies and and you know, mise-en-scene and montage and all these elements that are like the tools of really 
telling a story beyond the dialogue that happens on screen. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, where you first encountered the myth and uh, of Leda and how the how the decision came about to adapt that myth in such a sort of um, modern milieu, let's say. Sure. Uh, so as a kid, I was always really interested in mythology, but I can't say that I was necessarily familiar with this myth. A lot of people I talk to, especially Americans, aren't. Um, but it is a very, uh, it's basically a cultural iconic image of, um, of art history. It's one of the uh, myths that's been depicted in art the most throughout history. And it's supposed to be the myth that leads to Helen being born in the Trojan War and modern history uh, as we know it. But uh, I originally stumbled upon it because my co-writer, Wesley Pasterfield, he's a painter and he came to me and he said, oh, I just painted a, a Leda and the Swan because he's done a lot of like religious paintings or, or mytho mythological paintings. And he said, I think it could be a really cool uh, concept for a story. And then just kind of digging into it a little bit, it was interesting because the more I tried to research on the myth, the more it was like all the paintings and all the stories, it talks about like who the children were or what happened at the at the pond. But there is not a whole lot of backstory to Leda. I mean, you know, her father, you know, her husband, but you don't really know what happened to her after that too much. And so, of course, this divine intervention, this divine experience with Zeus, a god in the form of a swan that leads to a pregnancy uh, obviously, it reflects a lot of other religions. And I just thought there were so many concepts because ultimately, I feel like I'm a concept artist. I like to really dive into a concept or an idea or an emotion and try to visualize that and emote that on screen. And so between um, what I feel like is the uh, the strangeness and the miracle of pregnancy to be explored, also childhood trauma and sexual trauma and divine intervention. All these things were just kind of fodder to like work with as an artist. And then we kind of had the freedom to develop our own character later because we didn't have that defined like, oh, we're basing it on this myth. We need to stick it to that. So it was almost just a point of like, we just ran with it from the initial concept. This happens with Leda at the Swan, but how does that affect her? We wanted to make a real character study that is complete. I mean, you can see that she's on screen, Adeline Theri, who plays Leda, she's on screen virtually the entire film and completely like, carries the film. So I wanted to have this hyper-focused character study on how she's affected by what happens to her. Um, so that's kind of how we found the how we found the myth and then tried to, it also hasn't been done on screen. So we figured it's a huge icon of art history, why not bring it to film? Because I feel like I also see film as an incredible artistic medium that's often just seen as entertainment. So to find a blend between entertainment and art on screen, what better subject? Yeah, I love myth personally, because it's at once um, like very culturally specific to like the, you know, the the culture and the place that created it. Um, but at universal at the same time, like it speaks to these very like universally human concerns and fears and all these things. And that's something that I feel like this movie does so well is that it tells a specific story about what's happening to this woman. But it also really touches on these things about what happens to all women and what the experience of being a woman is and just like being a person encountering 
an unpredictable, terrifying world. You know, is that something that you also think about when you approach film or when you approach this one? That's sort of like the universality and the specificity of a story. Most definitely. I think so. I mean, it's really it. I also would say it's hard to really pinpoint and know. I mean, obviously you have some sort of a sense of where you want to go or what effect you want to make. But then I also, in in my making, I find that I find a lot of the magic along the way. And, you know, I feel like this film turned into something so much more poignant and so much more universal than what was originally on the page. And that's a lot of elements. I mean, that's that's because we also shot it over the course of 11 months. So there was reworking what works, what doesn't work. And um, also, you know, with Adeline's performance and her putting a lot into the performance and that helping us to evolve the script as well. But I, I always want to, with my work, make something that is to an extent as universal as possible, but without it being something that I don't find extremely personal or I can't relate to. So I think that's the two sides of it, you know? And I, I do always want my films to have an escapist-ness about them. Um, but at the same time, that escape being kind of like a reflection on life. So, you know, I want people to walk away thinking about something, but at the same time, having felt like they got that escapist need that cinema can provide. I love... Um... First off, it's it's a fantastic lead performance. Uh, performance. She's incredible, um, and I really love that um, it's so subjective in the way that um, she's filmed and the way that the film presents her. Um, and I, th I think one of the things that kind of achieves this. I'm sorry if this is a weird rambling question. <laughs> um, is the the fluid sense of time? You know, it's sort of like um moves back and forth between the past and the present in really organic ways in a way that feels like you are inside her head you know as things that she's experiencing trigger memories for her so can you talk about your strategies for creating that really kind of close subjectivity on film sure I, I definitely I mean as this being like kind of an intimate character study I wanted it to be not just feeling third person and so that was I feel it's one of the things that makes the film more difficult to watch for some, but at the same time, if you're able to kind of get through the first 30 minutes and understand that, that fluidity, uh, it is also what really puts us inside her mind, like you said. And, and I think it becomes one of the strengths because it's generally, if you have a flashback or you have a dream state or something, that's like very much defined while well, this one just kind of keeps going in and out and we're not, quite sure even at the end there's several ways you could interpret it um and so i i think that was by design to have it be more of a visceral experience for the viewer i didn't want someone to just come in and be watching a plot-based story you know like i could just lay it out on the line for you as as you know we're frequently apt to enjoy but I wanted this to be something that took a little bit more work or a little bit more involvement at least even if it's on a subconscious level from the viewer and then the the threads that I give the viewer to go on especially if you see it in 3D are there are different ways that we shot each of these things to subliminally let you know what time area you are like the dreamscapes were all shot in infrared photography the flashbacks were all shot in 2d anamorphic uh photography and then all the normal time was just shot in standard 3d um so 
So there's little little clues, but I did want it to feel very fluid. And there's such a theme of water throughout the movie too that to have the whole thing feel like a bit of fluidity, as you said, I think that's a. I'm I'm glad that we achieved it. <laughs> yeah, it's really amazing, and I do love the dreamlike imagery too. A lot of it is tied to the myth and to myth in general, like as you say, water, um, birth, death, um, mirrors and reflections, you know, found in nature, things like that. Um, I'd love for you to talk about. Um, you already mentioned it a little bit, but the choice to do a silent film. Um, because something that I find, especially in current filmmaking, um, is that like a lot of filmmaking is very plot driven and that tends to be dialogue driven. Like if you look at the super hyper wordy like Marvel movies, you know, like the 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 dialogue is really what's moving the plot forward and giving you all your exposition, uh, exposition and stuff. Um, so I'm wondering specifically for you, like what is the choice to eliminate dialogue open up for you in terms of filmmaking opportunities? Well, it was... I do. I completely agree. I feel like, uh, like I said, throughout the silent era, I felt like filmmaking was developing more and more rapidly. And as soon as sound came, we started to lose that development and became much more, you know, theatrical or, or much more plot driven or much more dialogue driven. It was so much easier to just tell a story rather than have to create a new language of telling a story strictly through cinema. Um, so my big goal was has always been to try to keep furthering that and find my own language in film. And so to at least force myself to do this first feature without words, it was almost a limitation that I had to figure out how can I make this still work for a viewer, especially a viewer in 2023. That's, you know, I'm sure a majority of people haven't even watched a silent film. So there's no, I mean, we ha all have a context of how to enjoy a movie and how to have that that suspension of disbelief, but to do it with a silent film is quite a challenge in this day and age. So it was a real challenge for me. And so selfishly, it was a way to help myself develop uh, my own language of cinema. But um, beyond that, it's just, because I feel like that's something that needs to be in cinema. I feel like the greatest films, you can watch them with the sound turned off and you still know what's going on. And that's, that's just good filmmaking. And uh, so as my first film, I just wanted to help myself challenged myself to uh, try to make sure or, or further my language in good filmmaking or pure cinema, if you will. I find that fascinating. Like I'm really interested in um, artists who sort of like choose constraints, you know, and then sort of like see what opportunities those constraints then create. Um, have there been other sort of like um, challenges or assignments like that, that you have either given yourself for a short film or for that you think about for future work? Um, hmm. Well, I, I would definitely say with Leda, I kind of uh, constrain myself in so many ways or either constrain myself or did the opposite of constraining myself because we, you know, we made a period piece. We uh, did it in 3D. We did it without dialogue. So the 3D was also very constraining in a way because it, you shoot with two cameras at once and your whole rig ends up weighing over 70 pounds. So, um, and my, my cinematographer, Nick Midwig, he's so much more used to doing documentary, high-end documentary work that he's used to moving the camera all the time. And this one fixed us so much more. And with 3D, you also want longer shots that you can scan around and such. So it also influenced the pace of the film. I, I like slower cinema in general, but um, but that was a huge constraint. Um, 
I do believe in constraints because I think they impose challenges that make you make you discover something that you might not otherwise. Um, but even without restraints, I think those, I mean, there's always challenges in filmmaking that you have to come up with something clever that uh, ends up making the film better. So it, it's, it's interesting to see. I have another film in the works and that one's very constrained, but I can't say if it's like really specifically in one way. Mm. Oh, interesting. Um, could you talk a little bit about the location? Um, the the house that you film around is really beautiful. And it is um, like the the period piece details are very like, um, I want to say like economical, but very effective, if that makes sense. Like it's a it's very um, efficient at evoking time and place. Like, so could you talk about choosing a location and then like if you see that location like as a character in the film itself and does that influence shooting and the story and all that? Most definitely. I, I think um, something that I do really like is world building or atmosphere building. And for this film in particular, I wanted there to be almost that timeless, very familiar, almost Gothic South mansion-y feel. That's, you know, it feels like an era, but we've seen it in so many visual like in, in old films or in paintings and stuff that it's looser. And I, I feel like choosing a location like that and a time period like that allowed, once you start watching it, it feels familiar, but you're automatically a little separated from the modern reality of, of now. And that's another reason to also that we shot it in black and white. So I, I feel like it immediately separates you from reality, but keeps you familiar enough. And, um, and it's, that's what I would say is kind of like a dream already. You know, you're familiar, you can you can almost touch it, but there's just something a little mysterious about it. And that's why we chose that location. The mansion itself, and I'm, I like how you said it was effective, but economical because I mean, this was, this was an extremely tight budget movie. And so to shoot a period piece and try to still have that feel of, uh, you know, of a surreal reality and a grandiosity and such um it was difficult but that the the setting was a combination of about four different uh, mansions that obviously through cinema you cut them all together makes it look like one thing but uh we were just really lucky to have these different the main two mansions are different mansions that are often rented out for wedding venues and such and and just going in there speaking directly to the people that run it and just trying to tell them what we're doing. Everyone was super, super game. But uh, at the same time, locations did become one of our big, bigger budget items. Um, but it was super nice to shoot there. And you just, it also just felt like you, I mean, that's the difference between shooting on location and shooting in the studio. Like you already feel like you're more in the world of the film. And then that makes it, uh, so much easier, I think, to just make believe and to to play. Oh, I never really thought about that, like about the sort of implications for filmmaking of shooting on location or on a set. But you're absolutely right, because on a set, you know, the the reality of the film that you are in is going to stop like 10 feet away from you <laughs> when the set ends. So that's really I think it's also why we see why a lot of acting in in green screen based movies feels a lot more flat because they're not playing with anything real. And I mean, some people are, are masterful actors and can do it anyway, but I, I see that a lot. Yeah. I think that a lot of worlds, especially in very CGI driven feel a little bit weightless these days. Mm -hmm. 
So exactly. then that, that can mean that like the performances feel a little like unanchored from any sort of <laughs> like real yeah. reality. I'm I loved the sound design in this film. And obviously the sound design has a, a huge role in the absence of dialogue. Um, I was reminded of like David Lynch's sound design, especially like in Twin Peaks, The Return. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but like oh, yes, it's, of course. it's so atmospheric and so full of dread at certain points that it does a lot of like the emotional work for you of like contextualizing what you are seeing. So could you talk about the sound design process a little bit? Well, it was very interesting. I uh, had a great team that did the sound design um, called Studio Unknown. It was led by Matt Davies and mixed by Matt Davies. And um, it was funny because we shot everything, virtually everything MOS without any sound. So when we handed over the cut to them, they got a completely soundless uh, movie with some, you know, temporary music scattered in where I thought music might might need to be. And so the way Matt described it to me, he was like, this is basically like doing sound for a cartoon because we start with absolutely nothing. We've got to build the background ambiances. We've got to do all the foleys. Adeline came down and did breath work for her character. They had other people do some breath work for the other characters. Um, so, you know, everything from footsteps to door slams to frogs chirping on the pond was all completely done by them. And we went through several waves of like how we want this to work, how much is showing how, and then how much sound design like ambiance is creeping into where the score is leading off and stuff like this conversations of like, oh, in this scene, she doesn't have footsteps. And that's weird. That's good. We'll leave it without footsteps. Or in this scene, we'll have the footsteps fully in, but we'll do them in reverse. So there's something strange that we barely notice, but like the footsteps are all reverse sound. So there's a lot of things like that. I mean, I really wanted every element of this film from how the 3D was shot and done throughout it to how it was cut to how the sound design was. I wanted them to all be working specifically for the story and the emotion of Leda and the character. Um, so they were basically everything was fed off of her mind state and and how much has she is she just losing it to like the whole world that's going on in her head? How much is she losing touch with reality? And and that kind of defined a lot of the decisions we made. And then we also had uh, Bjorn Magnuson and um, Andre Barrows doing a score. So Andre did more of a classical score with some uh, of the instrumentalists of the uh, Icelandic Symphony Orchestra. And so they did a lot of the uh, cellos and the strings that you hear. And then that's mixed with Bjorn's score that's much more synth, synth based. And uh, so it became a crazy mess of just paring everything down. And it ended up being pulling a lot of the music that we originally had back because I realized that just the ambiances and, and the subtle sound design without the without the dialogue like you said it just it really sucked you in and almost like took over and it's almost more present than it would normally be in a normal film and so i, I agree and it was all it was all very intentional but it was it was a big post-production process to to make all of the uh all the things that aren't visual oh. Well, this has been fascinating and thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy that I got to talk to you about this film because I watched it uh, twice over <laughs> over the past week in preparation for this. It's just like, it really is very dreamlike and really lovely. And I'm very excited to see what you do next. So thank you for joining us. Oh, amazing. It's been great. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks so much for enjoying the film. 
You're very welcome. All right, listeners, please check out Leda. Um, as of right now, you can see it on Canopy, I believe, through our library. So you should check it out. You can do it for free right now. And I absolutely recommend you do. Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode. Thank you.